Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. And this week I'm with Nick Sharma, molecular biologist, multiple James Beard award winner, food writer and photographer who's put vegetables under the microscope and opened up a whole new way of eating in the brilliantly titled Veg Table. A lot of the bitter compounds that are formed with the brassicas, they're destroyed. Even the bitterness uh, and the pungency that you experience or that kind of mild wasabi-like flavor comes from plant enzymes. And letting it rest lets it all dissipate. We first met a couple of years ago when he was on the show to talk about the massively successful flavor equation, which applied the foundations of science to cooking veg to give us a whole load more flavors to play with. I asked him as he began his London press tour, how he can keep shaking the world when he's really just talking about vegetables. <laughs> okay, that's that's a question that no one has ever asked me on this book tour. Wow, shaking the world, huh? Um, wow, I think I'm actually speechless for this question. Honestly, when I write cookbooks, my goal is to educate people because I come from an academic background and my goal is always to educate people. And the challenge I pose myself always is, what can I provide people to make their lives easier in the kitchen, but also give them a lens or rather the opportunity to see the world the way I see it in a different way. And vegetables are actually a really good starting point for that because just like people, vegetables are one of those things that have immigrated throughout the world. They've been brought either forcibly or they have naturally just by themselves moved on. And, you know, uh, in a way, vegetables have colonized different parts of the world, if you think about it. And a large part of that, you know, wars were fought for ingredients, spices, vegetables, and then plants by themselves, whenever conditions were environmentally favorable, they either found help from other natural partners, including humans, birds, mammals, um, even just by themselves and, you know, took over the planet. So for me, it's a really fascinating exploration of how we eat something daily, but they, all these ingredients have such rich histories and science behind them. And for me, that was the goal with this book. How do I talk about that? Make it fun for people, but also in a useful way. So you can actually apply that knowledge in the kitchen. Great answer. That is just about as good as it gets. Although let me take you even deeper. I would say that this is about really peeling the layers of the vegetables. It's looking under the skin of what vegetables are for us now. And at this particular moment, we are really understanding. I mean, maybe even two years ago when we spoke first, we didn't really do vegetables. Now we absolutely know that vegetables have to be part of our diet for our own health, but also the health of the planet. We've kind of finally got it. So we want to know what to do with them. We want to really understand it. And that's where we need the science. And we need the science to really understand really good health. We know about gut health now. So I do want to ask you a lot more. You know, as a molecular biologist, you do have the answers for us. But also we want to know what to do with the flavours. And you do both. Let's give us an example of some of the vegetables and what they can do for our health. You know, the, I think the most important thing about vegetables is the fact that they are water rich. So, I mean, you know, one of the things I don't like doing with any of my writing is telling people, 
unless you have health reasons. I'd never advocate for diets. I'd never do that. I think diets and health are such variable terms. Um, but for me, what's really important with a vegetable is that they're nutrient rich, they're water rich, um, they're also flavor rich and texture rich. Meat, I eat meat still, and meat something uh, you know is a source of protein. It has its own texture, but a lot of times, compared to vegetables, I feel meat falls short in terms of the possibilities that are available from a flavor standpoint, color, texture, aromas, taste, vegetables. The diversity is much wider. And the fact that vegetables can change the game in many ways, you could manipulate, for example, an eggplant. You can manipulate an eggplant to create textures that resemble meat and still feel satisfying. But you can also then just make it really mushy, like uh, people do with baba ganoush, or you do something crispy like fried eggplant. And so the possibilities are endless in just playing with texture and flavors. So for me, in that sense, vegetables do so much. They're also really rich in fiber. And fiber is one of the most important things in our diet that I think a lot of us in the West don't get enough of. And a large part of that is because vegetables contain these carbohydrates that our bodies are unable to digest. And these become the insoluble fibers that help clean out our bodies and it's so important for our diet. And that's something that meat can't provide. So just some of those basic things, those were some of the things that I learned in school. And so, you know, I that's why I go back to vegetables a lot because they provide all these extra benefits that I don't need to think about sometimes. Yeah. I can just get a vegetable without really paying attention too much and get so much out of it. Yeah, but you are also an academic. You have worked in public health for many years. So you come at vegetables, well, at food, with a very different lens. Um, taking that eggplant, the aubergine, as we call it, um, for example... You know, tell us a little bit about that kind of the debate about the alkaline diet and the acidity of vegetables. So that is one of the things I actually don't believe in. I, I'm strongly against defining vegetables as an alkaline nature or, or all of that, because from a pH standpoint, this is something that I was taught in school and even in medical school, is that everything mammals eat, including humans, pretty much everything we eat except for pure water is acidic by nature. There is no such thing as alkaline food. Baking soda is alkaline and no one really eats baking soda as an ingredient. It's just added in a tiny pinch. But even vegetables are all acidic by nature. A, for example, a green bell pepper is acidic. It, is, it contains so much vitamin C and ascorbic acid more than an orange per gram. And it is extremely acidic. So in that sense, I'm not a big believer in the uh, concept of alkaline diets I stay away from that because even I've seen people describe blueberries as an alkaline ingredient and that's not. Blueberries are rich in acid. So to me, it just makes no sense. But for me, what's really important but in terms of how to absorb these nutrients, that's something that's really important to me because not all vegetables should be eaten raw, for example. So a lot of vitamins and nutrients, they are fat soluble. So a carrot, for example, which is rich in vitamin A, vitamin A is a fat soluble vitamin. Eating a raw carrot, you'll get some of that vitamin A content, but not all, not a majority of it. To do that, you need to cook a carrot, add a little bit oil. So I think even the stigma of not consuming fats is a really important thing to consider when cooking because sometimes in order to get the most nutrition out of something, you have to use a fat because that vitamin, those fat soluble vitamins like vitamin A, 
they dissolve in fat, our bodies absorb them much better. And those are the things that actually affect conditions like inflammation and stuff like that. So those are the things we actually need to focus on is getting our essential um, fatty acids from our diet, which are important in inflammatory responses, as well as certain amino acids. And those are the things that are found in vegetables, in our food, but it's also the method of preparing them that is very essential. When you're talking about using different uh, elements uh, to to bring out the flavor, to 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 up our health, to to give us a better uh, overall diet, that's where the book really kind of is so useful because you break down w- what vegetables do and then you give us fantastic ways to use them. And, and a lot of ways, and we'll find out in your food moments in a minute, a lot of things that we probably don't know. But some of the um, the kind of the chemical process, let's just stick with your kind of science background. Um, tell us about caramelization, for example, the things that vegetables can do if you learn how to cook them. I think the science of cooking is such an important part of understanding how to cook because for me, it's always been about if I know what's inside my ingredients that I'm cooking with, where they come from, it helps me make better decisions in the kitchen when cooking. For example, the onion family or rather the amaryllis family of plants, which includes onions, garlic, uh, shallots, uh, uh, what am I missing? Uh, green onions or scallions, all of these things are so rich in the sugar fructose, which means if I heat them with a minimum amount of water, a little bit of oil, a pinch, a tiny pinch of salt, I can bring those sugars out, reduce the pungency of a lot of those vegetables, and then make them taste sweeter because that's what caramelization does with sugars. It's this chemical reaction that occurs in the presence of heat. It brings out bittersweet flavors, but it also adds a beautiful toffee color to food and makes everything sweeter. So it that helps me make those decisions. Potatoes, on the other hand, potatoes are a very rich source for vitamin C, which is sour to taste. And then it's also rich in starch. Starch is another polymer made up of glucose units. And caramelizing potatoes properly will help create a really delicious, sweeter texture. And then also I can manipulate the starch present on potatoes, kind of like Elizabeth David used to do in her books with you boil the potatoes, you shake them till uh, the starch granules kind of crumble and then form a little shell outside when you bake them or fry them. You get that crust. So even Elizabeth David in a way was, to me, when I read her books, She's kind of the unconventional scientist that without a lot of that formal training, she was performing science in the kitchen by, you know, just shattering those bonds between the the granules that contain starch, making them form that coat outside. And then when she baked or fried them, it created that crunch. And that's something that I do in a little bit more of a scientific way using baking soda. So for me, it's really fascinating just to see this exploration of science that's been happening for centuries in food. I've been throwing my potatoes around a roasting tin all my life, and I've never realized I was actually breaking any bonds. Uh, so there you go. Um, one, one of the things that's really interesting, you know, you do literally pepper the the, the lots of tips, uh, science tips through, through the book. Things like how do you stop onions making you cry? You know, by get, looking into the answer of that, you understand more about onions. I mean, tell us, apart from wood, putting wooden spoons in your mouth and uh, putting goggles on, how do you stop onions making you cry? So onions 
And a lot of the other members of the garlic family have this really pungent, tear-inducing situation that occurs when you slice through them. And the reason that occurs is that the cells inside onions have evolved as a way to protect themselves from predators. And plants are really amazing at this. They're usually very toxic creatures, uh, so to speak, and lead dangerous lives. But they've evolved all these different mechanisms to protect themselves from predators like wildlife. And onions, they do this thing when sliced through, there's an enzyme that's released that works and produces this really potent, tear-inducing, pungent aroma, if you will, because it's so sulfurous, it makes us cry. And there are ways to avoid that. We know it's an enzyme. So most enzymes in nature, they function better at warmer temperatures. So the first thing to do with an onion is to make it cold. And what I do at home, one of the things I'll do is I'll chill an onion in the freezer for about 20 minutes, pull it out and then chop. And that way the enzyme, it's too cold for the onion as, as a whole to even when cut through. You don't have a lot of that enzyme take activity taking place. Another thing that people do is, yes, you mentioned the goggles. That's a really popular thing to do. Um, one other thing you can do is to reduce the pungency. As soon as you cut the onion, stick it into a bath of ice cold water. It's the same thing. The cold temperatures bring everything down. And a lot of that pungent, bitter stuff that is there to taste with an onion in a salad dissipates into the water because a lot of that is water soluble. So... Just knowing the chemistry of how these things work makes it so easy then to cook in the kitchen or even just prep something as uh, painful as an onion. But that connection is is really interesting. Uh, and you became a gardener, uh, which led you to vegetables. You said as a child you tried growing lots of things and failed miserably, and then you finally uh, mastered it. And I love the idea that, that all these plants are, are fighting off the predators. Mine don't. I'm a terrible gardener. My, I, the wildlife just, you know, puts a napkin around its neck as soon as it sees me planting anything. I have never <laughs> been able to grow anything properly. Tell me your secret. Uh, okay, I got to thank Monty Don for this because a couple of years ago when we bought our first house in California, we were living in Oakland at my first garden and um, we started watching Gardener's World because we were looking for gardening shows and I just wanted to get an understanding and Gardener's World does such a good job of... Obviously, it's geared towards the United Kingdom and, you know, the climates here and everything. But um, when I uh, started watching that show, I was drawn into how wonderful gardening could be, just not only from an ornamental perspective, but also from an environmental perspective and the romantic notion of growing something to eat by myself. I think for me, that was a huge thing. And so when we lived in Oakland... Um, I worked with an edible gardener named Leslie and she helped us create a design for a small space that was both environmentally friendly. It would attract pollinators as well as I'd be able to grow vegetables and fruits. So that kind of was my starting point. I got more confident. Of course, there were failures all the time with mites and aphids and all these nasty little things. But then you start to realize that that's what the birds feed on. My problem is deer and rabbits. I do have that problem now that we've moved to LA. Shockingly, LA is a haven for wildlife, which is something that I didn't know. And we've got gophers, deers, rabbits, 
yeah, squirrels. I and think so share it, and share alike is, is the answer. To that. Yeah, I don't mind. You know, I really <laughs> don't mind losing some things to them as long as I get something to eat. But, you know, learning how to grow really makes you appreciate the challenges that farmers face. Yes, exactly. And that is the point. That's that. There's the connection. And when you really understand what it takes to grow food, you do appreciate it more. Let's, mm-hmm, let's move on to your your, your food moments. Um, this is where all the memories come in. This is absolutely lovely. Now, you grew up in India, um, really being inspired by your mother in particular, but also your grandmother. Uh, your first food moment is her stuffed cabbage rolls in tomato sauce. Tell us about this. This is one of my favorite dishes growing up. And I think probably because as a child, I was led to be a part of the process Now, these stuffed cabbage rolls, my grandmother used to make them with ground meat, uh, usually beef. So ground beef that was seasoned and spiced. And she'd cook that separately. And then once it was cool, she would steam cabbage leaves so they get nice and soft and malleable. And then we'd fill them up like little cigars. And then she would steam them in this tomato sauce. Now, for this book, I really wanted to recreate that, but I really wanted to create a vegetarian version of that. So this book was also written during the pandemic, and I started looking for easy things. Mashed potatoes. You can buy them in the grocery store pre-made, or you can cook them by yourself. And in this book, what I in this particular recipe, I've got mashed potatoes and cooked black lentils. Fold them all together. They're seasoned. And then you steam the cabbage leaves, just like my grandmother did, roll them up into little cigars, Put them into a cooking dish and then you pour tomatoes. I use canned tomatoes. I love canned tomatoes. I think the flavor is much stronger. Put that in there and then they're steamed. And then I finish it off with a tadka, which is a classic Indian technique of where you take hot oil, you throw a couple of spices in there if you're choosing. In this case, it's nigella and cumin. And then that adds the final hit of flavor. And then you steam it. It's so easy, but it also looks so dramatic. And it's a wonderful way to get kids involved in the kitchen. It is. And it's a dish that actually you'll probably find most places. It's very Eastern Mediterranean. It's very, it looks very Greek to me, uh, very Middle Eastern as well. I mean, you know, you do look all over the world uh, for your inspiration. Um, it's very LA, isn't it? Um, because you're in this lovely melting pot where, you know, there are so many people from different cultures that you can, really can take your pick. How much has LA influenced your uh, your recipes? I think... It has a little bit. I mean, I think one of the things as someone who's an immigrant and has lived in different parts of the world, I'm constantly constantly learning and absorbing what's around me. The other thing for me as someone who grew up in a multicultural household, my parents come from two different faiths. My mother's Catholic, my dad's Hindu. Uh, my mother comes from Goa, which is a form of Portuguese colony. So I've always kind of grown up in a situation where things come from different parts of those communities some are Western influenced and then some are very Indian in origin. And so it's constantly been a part of my lifestyle. And I think that influences the way I think and cook. Um, your second food moment is very much uh, Indian. Uh, you were brought up in Bombay. Um, it's Patra. You're, this is an Indian snack. Tell us about this one. Patra is a wonderful snack that I grew up eating for tea. It comes from the western state of Gujarat. And what they do in this dish is that they take leaves from the taro plant, which are these huge elephant-like le- elephant deer-like leaves, and they wrap them up. They s- Actually, first, what the first thing they do is they take these leaves and they 
lather and slather them and coat them with a very thin paste of yogurt and chickpea flour that's been seasoned. And that holds all the leaves together. That's rolled really tight and then steamed and cut into little, if you will, little rolls and then pan fried with a few more spices. And it's such a delicious, tasty snack that's so refreshing. And I would eat this as tea for tea. But after I moved to America, it's been really difficult to find them just because and even make them at home because taro plants are not something that I can find easily back home and in America. And what I found out later on was that collard leaves, they might be smaller, but they still have the same texture. So they have that strength. And so what I did for this book was kind of re-engineer the recipe to work with collard greens and it holds up so well and I can have my snack again and it's so delicious. So I thought this was definitely something that I need to bring into the book because again, I love the art of stuffing vegetables and folding leaves, morphing them into different shapes because that's something that I don't see being done a lot of these days in cookbooks. It's all about chopping, tossing things together and that's it. I think there is you know, a beauty, just like someone's making a beef wellington or, um, you know, kebab or rolling things. There is an art to playing with vegetables and their textures. And that's something that I tried to do with this book. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember who it was now who um, talked about massaging kale with olive oil and lemon juice uh, and putting it in the fridge uh, so that it kind of forms that sort of almost like a ceviche kind of um, process where it breaks down the cell structure and it makes a beautifully sort of malleable, um, gorgeous, raw kale dish. And I do it all the time now. Um, who knew? I mean, we know so much more. And it, that comes directly from the science, doesn't it? I mean, for me, I just want to I just want to eat raw kale and I don't want to eat, you know, it, it, it's the olive oil process that makes it uh, easier to eat. But actually paying attention to the how opens the door to all sorts of new ways of eating vegetables, more interesting ways. Absolutely. You know, the kale is such a good example of manipulating vegetable textures because you're breaking down the cells, like you mentioned, you're breaking down those hard fibers. And another thing that's happening with letting it sit with the olive oil and the lemon juice or whatever kind of dressing that you're using is that a lot of the bitter compounds that are formed with the brassicas, kale belongs to the brassica family, they go away. They're destroyed. They don't form as much because, again, even the bitterness uh, and the pungency that you experience or that kind of mild wasabi-like flavor comes from plant enzymes. And letting it rest lets it all dissipate. Yeah. Understanding opens the door to better communication. Um, your third food moment is a go and pee curry. Um, this is from the Indian state of Goa, where your mother comes from. Um, again, lovely bringing ideas from the family, putting them through your scientific prism and serving them up on a plate in L.A. So, for a global audience. Yeah, I love this recipe growing up as a child. It was one of the most comforting bowls of peas or legumes or beans, as you will. Such a lovely dish. And yellow peas are less sweeter in taste than green peas. I like green peas on their own, but sometimes I do find them very sweet in contrast to other dishes on the table. And these yellow peas or white peas, as they're sometimes called, they aren't as sweet. They hold their texture really well. And they're much more creamier in stews 
and curries. And this dish is really simple. You just caramelize onions for a while, throw in your beans, uh, sorry, your peas that have been soaked overnight, and then they all fall apart really beautifully. And it's a coconut milk-based uh, curry or stew, if you want to call it. And all you need is rice. I literally just eat this with rice. But if you love seafood, this is also a really good accompaniment to shrimp and fish. Part of uh, understanding how to use vegetables um, is to uh, know how much they need soaking or preparing or massaging and leaving in the fridge. And then you've got a, a, a dish to play with. It's about forming new habits, isn't it? It's about, OK, I want to do something with lentils tomorrow or dal or whatever. Soak overnight. Then you got, then you can start playing in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not the best planner in life, but I have found if you don't have time and you have forgotten to soak your beans, that's something that I do. Pressure cooking is a really nice alternative yeah. and as well as frozen and canned yeah, food. Absolutely. Your final food moment goes back to the streets of Bombay, where you grew up. Uh, chart, street food. Uh, a lot of it is, of course, vegetarian. Um, do you think that those smells, those flavours, the textures kind of made an early imprint on you? Absolutely. I think one of the things that Indian food or Indian culture in general does really well is with the different tastes is that all of them happen usually at the same time. There is no restraint in terms of flavors, like everything should be an explosion. You're not looking for a singular defined taste or a singular defined spice. You're looking for a crazy explosion of flavors. Textures, there are so many different textures, soft, creamy, crunchy. And for me, it's always been about that. So chart is actually one of those, I call it a cult. I feel it's a cult of foods in India where everything's happening at the same time. So you, your mind doesn't know what to pay attention to. And for me, that is what creates interest in flavor. You've just arrived in London. You're doing a press tour. Lots of interest in your book, which is great. Um, I can imagine a lot of people buying it for Christmas. Um, it, the, the big question is always, you know, what do you do next? But then even as I ask that, you've done so much more in this one than you did in the last one in the flavour equation. There is so much more to say about non-meat products, about how to explode our diet so that we are saving the planet and becoming much, much healthier ourselves. Absolutely. And I don't think even with this book, I don't think I've even scratched the surface of what the potential could be. I think there are so many new technologies coming, even with appliances in the kitchen, like sous vide, uh, air fryers, dehydration. There were some things that I really wanted to do. And I felt that, okay, I don't think, I think I'm steering away from the concept or the premise of this book. Maybe those ideas are better for another day. But yeah, I don't think I scratched the surface of the, the full potential of vegetables. And I don't think anyone actually can completely. There's just so much we can do, not only from reusing, but also increasing the amount of nutrients and the best that we can get out. Because at the end of the day, it's also making the most of what you have. It is. I mean, you know, the mo making the most of what you have. We've been talking a lot on the po podcast recently about Cucina Povera. You know, that's going back to, you know, the the 
old school Italian uh, rules of cooking. You know, we're talking about granny skills. We're talking about food from around the world. We're talking about science. We're talking about new products in the kitchen. It's all coming together. It feels to me that there's this explosion of interest. There's a real revolution in food, in plant-based diets where we just want to know more. We're becoming more food articulate, more interested, more aware of the connection with the planet, with the soil health. All of that together in this massive great pot uh, looks quite different to the way it did two years ago when you brought out Flavour Equation. For you, from your position, what does the world look like? I think the world is a very interesting place right now because like you mentioned we're really seeking answers not answers only just to you know just have tasty food or whatever it's also looking at the impact of what our actions cost us the environment and also for future generations and that's something that I keep thinking about a lot even when with this book one of the things I kept thinking to myself does it really feel right to ask someone to boil vegetable peels and leftovers for hours on the stove, is that actually environmentally friendly? At the end of the day, it doesn't feel right to me. You know, so those are the questions that we have to start weighing things. And I see a lot of younger writers doing that these days, and even people in the food science space who aren't cooking and developing technologies. Uh, For example, pectin. People commercially are obtaining pectin from waste potato peels. That's a huge source. Onion peels. Now, I always tell people onion peels, you know, don't use them to make stock because it makes them really bitter because they're rich in polyphenols. On the other hand, the health industry or the pill industry, so to speak, is taking those peels to extract those polyphenols and sell them in in pill form because they're so concentrated. So I think there are all these things that are happening. How do we bring that to the table, maximize what we get in an environmentally friendly way for the world? And I think for me, that's the big question that I look forward to answering. Thanks for listening. Do rate and review the podcast if you like it over on Apple Podcasts and then head to my Substack to see what Nick has for us. We want extra bites.